Hey y'all, this is Zoe Midler, host and moderator of the Not a Rocking Chair Librarian podcast. This is episode 23, Listen, Connect, and Support, featuring Christina Holzweiss, Educational Technology Enrichment Specialist at Syosset High School in Syosset, New York. Gee, I hope I pronounced that right. Prior to her current role, she was the School Library Media Specialist at Bayshore Middle School in New York for eight plus years. Christina was named the School Library Journal 2015 School Librarian of the Year. In 2018, Library Journal named her an education mover and shaker. She is the founder of Slime, Students of Long Island Maker Expo. She is the author of True Books, Amazing Maker Spaces DIY and Rookie Star, I Can Make Series of Titles, which you can definitely find on Amazon or from whatever book vendor you work with. And she's the co-author with Stoney Evans of Hacking School Libraries, 10 Ways to Incorporate Library Media Centers into Your Learning Community. Whew. Okay, I've been a longtime follower of Christina. She's not only influenced my philosophy about librarianship, but she's also been a maker movement guru for me, validating the importance of maker-centered learning as an avenue for students to experience and practice essential skills. Last year, I led a year-long maker ed cohort in the Boulder Valley School District in Colorado, and I asked Christina if she would allow me to share with um, cohort members a series of posters she created called So You Want to Learn About dot, dot, dot. And basically these were recipe cards or flyers, if you will, that students could pick up in her library and walk to a station and learn how to work with Ozobots or consider how design thinking might work in a particular um, project they were working on. And um, I did incorporate these into our course content and I also made Christina a member of the Schoology course um, so she could actually see the content that we were including uh, in our, uh, for our cohort members. So uh, although it was a small contribution, it was really um, cool to have uh, such a notable person being a part of um, uh, that process with us. So thank you, Christina, for that. You can follow Christina on Twitter. She's incredibly active <laughs> and really helpful. She shares, shares, shares. And her Twitter handle is at librarian, at L-I-E-B-E-R-R, I-A-N. You should also check out Christina's blog, Bunhead with Duct Tape. She uses Wakelet to deliver the content for her blog. It's really inventive and interesting. And what I love about Wakelet is I can save what she sends as a collection and share it with others. Uh, again, you can find her um, blog at bunheadwithducttape.com. Just sign up and it'll be great. You'll get this wonderful Wakelet delivered into your email. You can always follow me at Z Midler, at Z-M-I-D-L-E-R. Okay, let's chat with Christina. Christina, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about libraries, librarianship, and the book you co-authored with Stoney Evans, Hacking School Libraries. I have to tell you, my copy is barely readable anymore since it's covered with highlighter marks and lots and lots of notes. I've recommended this book to both new and seasoned teacher librarians. So many common sense, practical and creative ideas to level up the patron experience and begin to transform library spaces and programming into places where students are preparing for the future today, to quote you from the intro of the book. What I appreciate most about the book is the format for how each hack is introduced and laid out. There's the problem, the hack, what you can do tomorrow, blueprint for implementation, overcoming pushback, and then the hack, the hack in action, which is sort of the real life application of the hack and its outcomes and impacts. Um, big kudos to you and Stoney for including the overcoming pushback section for each hack. 
You captured perfectly the yes buts, often heard by teacher librarians from administrators, staff, and parents when they make changes or try something new that counters their perceptions of library spaces, programming, and the role of the teacher librarian. I think it's really funny how we tend to get pushback from those folks, but I can't ever remember getting pushback from students when we try something new. Um, it's important not only to hear about the art of the possible, the hack itself, but equally important to prepare teacher librarians for the questions, yes, buts, they will undoubtedly have to navigate as they implement changes and disrupt long-held ideas and expectations around K through 12 libraries and librarianship. So I just really appreciated sort of that honest feedback, you know, about, yeah, you're going to try this, but be prepared for this. So really great stuff. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Um, and uh, a lot of it has come from my reading of the book and just being a longtime follower of you. So um, my first question for you is, what do you consider the most transformational or most impactful hack a teacher librarian can undertake to create a student-centered participatory learning hub, you know, to change the library from what it has been to what it could be? I really think that listening is one of our most important skills. You know, I've always heard the adage, you know, we have one mouth and two ears. <laughs> and I really think that listening can really help us. We need to listen to students. Why are they coming to our libraries? Why are they not coming? What makes them happy about it? What, what would they like to change? Listening to our teachers, the faculty, I learned over the years to listen more. I, I had been a seventh grade English teacher. When I became a school librarian, I had forgotten what it was like to be in the classroom. And a friend of mine reminded me of the different constraints that classroom teachers have. We need to be mindful of that as librarians, that we are in a really great situation that we can talk about all disciplines and all subject areas and all grade levels and ability levels, but other teachers are pigeonholed into their one curriculum and their grade level. And so we need to listen to what we can do to help them. We need to listen to our administrators. What is it that they need from us? You know, the, I, there's a, um, a, a feeling that if advocacy is solving someone else's problem, we need to listen to those problems. We have to listen to what people say so we can find ways that we can solve their problems. And I think, I know it sounds not like something very easy or not something simple, like, you know, just running up to Target or Ikea or looking on the internet and finding that simple hack. But I think if we improve our listening skills, I think we can improve librarianship because we can help others. And that's what we're in for. We are in the service of helping others. And it's not just the technology or the reading or the maker spaces or the space or the tea. It's listening to others and seeing what we can do to help them to make their lives easier, to make their work more efficient, to make learning fun. It's listening. How, okay, I'm gonna deviate from the questions that I had already thought I was gonna ask you based on your response, but I'm curious, how do you, how have you, what has been successful for you in eliciting that feedback? I mean, you know, sometimes it is just, you know, you happen to be passing by or do a drive by or you sit in a meeting, but how have you, how, how have you really, what's been successful for you to draw out that information? Uh, well, I like connecting people and I like connecting resources and things. So I always, you know, we always, Librarians have that database in our heads. There's that one person in the school who's doing a certain subject, who's teaching a certain skill. 
There's the administrator who's looking how to solve a problem. There's a student who wants to connect with the book. And it's, okay, how can we connect these dots together? And together we can work, you know, so much stronger. And we have done that. We can connect all those things together because, you know, in, in schools, either the people in elementary and middle school, they're really by their grade level. In high school, they're by the subject area. And they're in these little silos. Or they're pigeonholed into these little cubicles. The administrators, the students, we have this ability to look at things more globally and connect. Mm -hmm. So we take the listening and then we start connecting. Mm -hmm. And that helps us collaborate. Right. Absolutely. I always, I, I do, I always think of us as information professionals. And one of the things that a really good information professional does isn't just collect the data, they synthesize the data, right? They help connect those dots and make those connections. So yeah, that's a good reminder. Um, the next question I have for you is that, uh, maybe this is a great dovetail off this, is I was reading an article about you in Library Journal. It was a Library Journal article from 2018 when you were named as one of the movers and shakers. Uh, and a colleague said of you, Christina has a passion to share. She can come with, up with an out-of-the-box idea and then bring people in to add to it. Her idea becomes everybody's idea. How do you get your idea to become everybody's idea and how do you pitch or approach teachers with ideas for collaborative teaching opportunity? What has worked for you? Be, again, understanding what it is like in other people's shoes. Mm -hmm. People are more likely to collaborate with you when they, I mean, they have a vested interest in it. There's something beneficial to them. And that's not a negative thing to look at. We're all doing something for our benefit. Um, I can teach any kind of web tool, uh, I can teach, I, I would talk about a book, but if the person's not ready, it, you don't know how many, I've been in a few schools, and you don't know how many people say, oh, I have an email folder called Christina's folder or the library folder, and they save my emails. This has been in all my districts. They save my emails and they throw it in the folder until they're ready. I'm, you know, it, they may come to me within a few days. They may come with me to me in a few years when they are ready. But you always have to be mindful of kind of making like a mental note or even maybe even a, a notebook of what's going on in the school. What is the pulse? What is the, the big why? What is the trend? What is the focus? What is the purpose? What are we all doing? And then what are the focuses and purposes of the people you're working with personally? How can you make someone's life easier? And, and, and think of it that way. So it's not so much that, you know, you're putting something on them, but they're ready for it. You know, you, you've, you've created this beautiful dinner on a beautiful platter, but if they're not ready to come to the table, they're not going to enjoy it when it's put on them. And I think that's actually, you know, a really great, we're in a great situation as librarians is we can offer, we can offer lots of things. And people can take them or they don't. They're not intimidated by us. Mm -hmm. We got a mandate on them. We don't say you have to read this, you have to do this web tool, you have to, you know, create this project. We are helpers. We are not intimidating. We are a help we were we are there to help them get to the end point. We can help them with the a mandate. We can help them with the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I that, that's what helps us win them over. It, and also thinking personally, I always try to think of, okay, this web tool you might not be able to use now, but think of it how, when you're planning your next vacation. 
or think about when you're next door, you create a birthday card and they can see the value of them personally. And then they start to think, oh, well, how can I use this in my curriculum as well? Always thinking of things at a personal level and always thinking about the other. Mm-hmm. I, I've learned that and, I, and I've had people along the way, some mentors who've reminded me, you know, you're not thinking about the other. And I actually put up a little post-it note. Uh, I had a mentor years ago who was a reading teacher. Her name was Marianne. And I literally put a post-it note next to my uh, computer that would say, what would Marianne do? Because I get so excited. I want to try out this web tool. I want to send these things out. I'm just like, I'm thinking everyone else is excited. My friend Marianne's thinking, you have to understand, we have uh, a midterm exam. This is not a good time for that contest. We have um, state assessment tests. It's not a good time for this. It's a good, better time later on. Mm-hmm. So I always have that post-it note sitting there. And, and now this year, I haven't had to put it up. <laughs> I've internalized it. Always thinking of the other because we're not in the service for ourselves. We're in the service for others. I am totally guilty of getting caught up in the excitement of something, right? And I I wanted to bring it to fruition, but maybe it wasn't the right time for that teacher or those students to experience that. So one of the things that I think I, I learned is that I had to be okay with cooperation and not necessarily collaboration. Yes. Right. Yes. And I think that so when your analogy of, you know, putting the food out there, I had to be okay with maybe putting some appetizers out and holding back right on the meal. And that was a that was a big epiphany for me. And it was a hard epiphany for me because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us want to run a little faster than the folks around us. And so that's a really good reminder. I I, I appreciate that. You need to write a book just about that. (laughs) (laughs) What would Marianne do? I'm sure she'd be. (laughs) Bye, Christina. Um, all right. So uh, the last question I have for you, um, unless I decided to go into another question, which you just made me think of, um, but more importantly, is, oh, we were just talking before we started this call, because we were syncing up a little bit before we launched into the recording, about a poll you had put out back in, I think it was the late summer, asking folks to, um, what was most important from a library support perspective? I'm paraphrasing here, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, about uh, was it was it parent support more important or administrator support more uh, important? And then I noticed just the other day you put up a tweet. Um, I think it was just actually maybe less than 24 hours ago um, where you put up uh, an image that said library programs thrive dot 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 with administration because of administration or despite administration. So I'm kind of curious between the poll and this tweet, latest tweet, kind of what, what's been the impetus for this? What, what are you thinking about? Well, I've seen on social media, you know, and especially Facebook, that, you know, we always put our best, best foot forward. You know, I'm showing all my vacation photos. Oh, my son has an award. My daughter is in the dance. My other son is doing Taekwondo. We always put out those really great things. And then some of us feel like we're inadequate. And I get that too. I see these great things going on in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And I said, and I start doubting myself. I really do. I said, I want to do these things. Excuse me. I want to do these things also. And then I have to think about what's reality. There are some people out there who complain all the time. (laughs) You know, and that's not the reality either. I like it when people are real. I like it when people say, this is something that I've tried and these are the things that have happened and, and, the, and you know, putting out there the, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. 
So then I started thinking about, you know, people who their library programs are really thriving. And then I have to think, is it because they have um, more administrative support? Do they have more parental invo involvement? Do they have a higher economic status in their district? Do maybe do they have more aid? We are all working hard as librarians. We're all working hard as educators. And we will thrive regardless of all those things. But you can't deny the fact that with more support from wherever it comes, your program can improve and it can succeed. But I don't want people to be, you know, to have those doubts about themselves that, um, you know, it's never going to work out because I don't have certain things. We have to find that balance of, sorry, we have to find that balance of, we need administrative support to get things moving, but we also need ourselves. And we have to, and all the administrative support in the world will do nothing if you don't have any drive to improve your library. But in the same respect, if you work so hard working on your library program, and you're met with obstacles left and right, that is a school issue and that is a district issue. So I'm really, it's not so much a poll of which one wins, administrators, parental support, and it's not so much, my, my quote about the library program thriving with, because, or despite, basically saying that there are reasons Hold on, I have a little bit of a hiccup in your connection and maybe some people are not, it's just, I guess, opening the conversation. Um, hang on, Christina, I had a little hiccup in our connection. So you were saying that the poll wasn't so to get uh, one or the other. So could you repeat that for me? Yeah, the, the poll wasn't so much to get like, you know, which one wins? Yeah. Is it parental support, administrators? The poll was kind of asking the question of, you know, making people reflect on where they, where they felt that they're goals were coming from mm -hmm. and and how they felt about themselves mm -hmm. and about um, their own self-worth and their own value as librarians mm -hmm. and as educators. One of the things I have talked about with other people when I've done the podcast is administrators and you know, lengthy conversations about administrator support. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I always struggle with is that administrators don't come from the same programs that the librarians have gone through. And I still think we're seeing a generation of administrators who, who aren't hearing the messages we're hearing as we go through programs, as we connect with each other, um, as we see our role changing. So um, I guess my question is, have you been in a situation where you've had to educate the administrator and how, how effective were you? I mean, it does mean a lot when that administrator understands that you are more than just a book jockey and that you can be an advocate and that you can assist and provide counsel and see the big picture and, and help answer the whys and understand the motivations. So I wonder if you've ever been in that situation where you really had to help the administrator get on board, so to speak. I, you know, I have to be honest. I have to be, I, I'm fortunate that I, I am, have not been. Maybe they don't see everything that I know of, but they do see the value of libraries. In every position I've been in, they have seen the value of libraries. Um, it could be a different value. It could be a value of 
um, working with teachers. It could be a value of um, reading. It could be a value of engineering and makerspaces. It could be a, there have been a variety of values because I've had a variety of administrators with their own feelings. But every one of them has had a value of libraries. So that I can't speak to because I've, I've been fortunate. But there are many people who are going through that time where they don't have people who are valuing libraries. And it's been, I've been doing some research. I, I've been reading a book about the libraries of the future. And there, you know, librarians in the 1970s were saying that we have to adapt to society. In the 1970s, I mean, people think of libraries as so like, you know, we're, we're very strict. I mean, we're, you know, we have our hairs and hair and buns and bring this book back at a certain time. And in the 1970s, they were considered, you know, librarians back then wanted digitalization. Mm -hmm. 1978, they wanted digitalization because they saw the libraries were getting full of these voluminous books and they were welcoming innovation and technology. And we always think of libraries as like these archaic mm -hmm. archives. Well, maybe the Library of Congress is an archive, but public libraries, you know, during World War, the World Wars, during the Vietnam War, these soldiers came back and they were learning about different trades. Uh, libraries have visited hospitals. When I was a kid, we had a bookmobile mm -hmm. that came to my, to my grandparents' corner. So we have been very progressive over the years. I don't know why we still have this stereotype of the librarian and the library, but you have, you know, I've heard people say, oh, libraries today are so different. Well, what library have you been in? I mean, from libraries, I've, I've, even as a child, I knew that they helped teach, they used to help people learn English. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a computer. When I was going for my master's in English, I don't have, I didn't have a computer. I literally student taught at the middle school where I was a student, and you know, when I was a student years ago, I walked across the street to the public library to type my resume to send out in the in mail to get a job 25 years ago. The library was always there. So I don't know, you know, there've always been drop-in programs for kids. There've always been you can laugh all you want about microfiche, but you know, that's how I wrote my thesis. On, on Thomas Decker and the 1600s, I was able to actually go to Queens College Library and look up these things on microfiche. We laugh at it now, oh, we just go on the internet. You've been doing, libraries and librarians have been doing it for years. We've been helping people for years. It's, it, that's a really great thing to remember, especially when you're engaged in conversations with some of our more traditional librarians. Um, to remind them about this. So what is this book you're reading? Librarians of Libraries of the Future? Yeah, it, I have it somewhere. It's Libraries of the Future, or I'll, I'll get the title for you, but yeah. it, it's a collection of um, references. Um, and actually, uh, I'm working on a presentation right now, and one of the articles I had, I had referenced in this book, it was in, in Google Books or something, Google Scholar, and there was a reference to it that I found on eBay and actually bought the book so I could really read it. And then I found the article wasn't there. So I found the article um, on a database. I thought you were going to say microfiche. Well, not microfiche. It was a database. <laughs> and it was about libraries of the future in 2028. Oh, wow. But interestingly enough, in the article, kids were talking about how you push a button on the wall and then like you want all the horse books all the horse books will come out 
Then they were talking about like how you can go home and call up the library and you could order uh, movies uh, and TV shows through closed circuit television to be, right? Yeah. Okay, we have another little hiccup. Okay, we had another little hiccup. You said closed circuit uh, television and then I lost you for a second. <laughs> Uh, there was a young girl who was talking about something called a newspad. And on this newspad, you could access audio and video and text. I said, well, that's an iPad. Do you know that this was actually an essay contest from the Wisconsin Public Libraries during the summer reading program? And it was in 1978. Hmm. 1978, kids were thinking about what the libraries would be like in 2028, and these were their ideas. And that one girl talked about the iPad at the very end. She said, I don't know how to end, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but to the fact of I don't know how to end this essay because I don't think libraries will ever end. They'll always be a value for reading, and they'll always be adventure at your library. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but she's, that's how she closed her essay. That was 1978. Hmm, okay. Well, I'm, uh, now you have me curious about the talk you're going to do. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the talk? <laughs> or, yeah, well, this is your yeah. chance in the podcast to tell me what's coming up for you, anything you're working on, publications, research, uh, talks, appearances, anything like that? Uh, there will be, uh, it, it will be a keynote okay. um, at, at, a, at a conference. Oh, um, it will be a keynote at a conference. And it's all about um, uh, empowering kids to create digitally. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the first half of the presentation is to talk about the why, mm -hmm. and it'll talk about you know where we're we going in the in the future of you know it could be the future I don't know um, some things that are already out there and I don't mean you know let's change the world I don't mean like let's take all the libraries and dump out all the books I don't mean that I but one day maybe a hundred two years hundred years from now I don't know if we'll have paper you know I had this discussion with my husband he said well. Who knows if we'll even have trees? Yeah. You know, our environment could go through a total change. And he's like, maybe those trees will have a value to help us live. And we can't cut them down. Mm -hmm. And we can't create paper. And I thought about that. I said, you know, I, we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. We have to acknowledge, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I prefer a book. Mm -hmm. I don't like digital. And I'm not saying, you know, you know, everyone's like, oh, we're going to this and that, you know, we have books are going, you know, you know I, I'm not advocating emptying out the library and putting in a makerspace. I completely understand. Okay. I don't, I don't want that. People I don't think, advocate that either. <laughs> no, I, I, there's and an or, there's a place for both. Yeah. But I don't know what the future will bring. And it won't be one day that the, we won't have printed books, but if that eventually happens, it will be very, very subversive. It will be very slow. We may not be around to see that, mm -hmm. but we need to prepare our kids to adapt to things in the future. It's that adaptability. I'm not preparing my kids to use this web tool over reading a book. I'm, adapt I'm helping them adapt to change mm -hmm. and adapt to different modalities of learning because I don't know what's going to happen. No, that's a really, I mean, that's a very very important point you know trees might become these sacred things that we need in order to survive and maybe there will be some 
you know, portion of the, the content that's available in the world that's still printed, but maybe those are select things. I mean, I don't know, like you've given me a lot to think about. Now I'm thinking about, like I have this whole vision in my mind now of a movie where the trees are, you know, these sacred things. I, I love The Giver. Yeah, so exactly. It, um, now I'll really blow your mind. As I was doing some research for the presentation, there is a program called The Future Library, and it's in Norway. And what the artist has done is she cleared out a port of the, I guess, the, the area, and they're planting trees. Now, all these trees will someday, in their vision, become books. It began in 2014, and every year, for a hundred years, an author will submit a book, present a book. And the first author was Margaret Atwood. She wrote a book. She presented it in 2014. It has never been read. And it will never be read until 2114, 100 years from now. Every year, they will, a new author, an author will submit a book and they will stow it away in their library. And 100 years from now, they will cut down those trees and they will create paper and they will print those 100 books on that paper. Mm. And then when I told my husband that, he said to me, well, what if that's the only forest left? Yeah. Or there is there is a special group of, I mean, this is, <laughs> like I said, I can visualize like this special forest where trees are growing just for the purpose of creating paper books again. You know, it's, I don't know. I think there is a, I think there's a book in this. <laughs> there's a book in this idea. <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating. It's called the Future Library. Okay. But I truly believe it doesn't matter what the media is. We're all human. Mm -hmm. And the more technology we have, the more human our humanity is becoming important. Mm -hmm. And it's always the story. It's you and I speaking. Right. And I'm telling you the stories and you're telling me your stories. That's what's going to keep on going on and on and on. That's what's going to keep us together forever. Yeah, I agree. I don't know about the trees. I don't know about the computers. But I do know that sharing stories is a human quality that will always brave and always need. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your stories with me today and taking this time. And also, you know, the, the hacking, the, the, the book has been so great because again, it's, there's so many folks who are coming into the profession who, even though they're coming out of programs and they're asked to be progressive and they're asked to do collaboration, there still really isn't always a blueprint or how do I do X, Y, and Z. And I just think a book like Hacking School Libraries is really important for those folks. I, so, I also think it's incredibly important for the folks who've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years because it walks you through the process. It's not like, you know, I've said this before in other podcasts speaking with people and when I'm doing presentations, you know, it's great to get up and talk to people about all this art of the possible, like I said. But if you have a limited budget, if you don't have the support that you need, if you don't um, have great relationships with your teachers yet, you know, all these things are just so easy for those of us who've been able to do that to talk about it and how great it is. But the book is just filled with practical advice about how to get it going. So, you know, thank you and, and Stoney for doing that. And I hope you put out another one because I'm, I'm sure even today you're doing things in, you know, with teachers that others would like to hear about it. So, um, so yeah, so it's easy for me to say, just please write another book. <laughs> Thank you. I was actually influenced by Joyce Valenza. Yeah. I remember when I had gone to library school and, and seeing her books and, and then I had, and, and then I was watching, um, 
uh, Angela Stockman on Twitter, and she has a book, uh, Make Writing and a Writer's Workshop. I have one somewhere, somewhere over here. Um, and I read that book, and I post-it noted everything. And I want to write a book that someone would post-it note. Um, I want something that someone would post-it note. And actually, Sony and I went to the Hack Learning series because, honestly, we wanted the, the book about libraries to have a wider audience. So the Hack Learning series has more than 20 books in the series, but they're read by people from all different subject areas and administrators. So I felt like having the library book in that um, series would be good because it would be seen by people who are not just librarians. And that was a good point of advocacy for us. Sure. No, it was great. I mean, I do. I think this is all of the stuff in the Hack series can be read by anybody. I agree. And I would love to see an administrator read this book. <laughs> that would be awesome. I agree. Um, all right. Well, again, I can't thank you enough um, for doing this. And I'm going to wrap this up. And, and I, as I always tell all my guests, um, as soon as I have this published and posted, you'll be the first to know, um, hopefully the next week or so. And uh, I'm going to keep you on the line, but I'm going to go ahead and end our recording. So thanks again. Thank you.